All right, we're starting a new study this morning. Um, I've had fun toying with people this week. Uh, when they ask me what book we're going to be in, I've told them we're going to be in a book in the New Testament. And um, let me tell you why before I actually tell you where we're going to head. Uh, typically, whenever we're doing a study, when, I, when I'm teaching on Sunday mornings, I, I get towards the end of a book and there's a period of time where I begin to wait on the Lord. And, and I call it what floats to the top. I mean, he doesn't open the ground and talk to me. That would be really dangerous because he's done that before and it didn't end well for the people he was speaking to. But But he does impress on my heart. And, and like with you, this has been a period of great upheaval in our world. It's been a period of, of great uncertainty. It's also been a period, and it is a period of excitement and expectancy. Because I don't know about you, but I'm looking for the Lord to return soon. For him to take the church out of here and we're going to look at some slides this morning. I, I actually have an old or a 2,000-year-old sort of a map, but I had to put uh, Crimea and Ukraine on it presently because it figures in where we're at. So I was just in a posture of saying, Lord, where do you want us to study? And, and, and even yesterday at the men's conference, one of the people commented on the absolute necessity and I can't underscore that enough, folks, for us to be grounded in the foundational truths of Christianity. There is so much. And you guys hear me all the time talk about how much garbage there is out there and, and how much spiritual hype there is out there, how much spiritual junk food there is out there, that, that, that the church in many ways has lost her way uh, by going after an entertainment venue or going after signs and wonders is an end to themselves. And I, I, I and the, the name of this book just kept coming up in my prayers. And so rather than work our way through the word of God going forward and go from Romans into 1 Corinthians, we're going to go backwards a book and uh, open with me to the book of Acts. Uh, we've got 28 chapters to go through. Uh, this will be a, 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 I am really excited about this particular book. I've got some handouts. Doug, could you give me some assistance? Uh, we're gonna, we're gonna look at the front of this, not the back. The back of it is really for your information. Um, it has a, a, a timeline for the book of Acts. It's, it's more time than I want to spend going through it. But we'll look briefly at the front, this overview as we go along this morning. I'll point some things out. And guys up there uh, with the media, when we get to the slides, uh, if you would full screen those for the people online. I notice because it's a rainy, cold day, a lot of people watching online this morning. And so I know that they will appreciate being able to look at what we're passing out here. So, uh, so the book of Acts, how did we get the title? Now the title, I mean, the writing is definitely anointed and, and spirit <laughs> directed and and inspired. But the title of this book is simply The Acts of the Apostles. What took place in the early church? Uh, many early manuscripts just simply use the title 
Acts, not the Acts of the Apostles like your Bible might say. And I want to point out, too, that it is the Acts of some of the Apostles. It's not the Acts of all the Apostles. This is not a comprehensive uh, account of all of the things that were going on with all of the Apostles. But it is a very concise account uh, about primarily what was going on in the first section of the book, what was going on through Peter, because he was sort of the head apostle to the church uh, in Jerusalem and to the Messianic church as well, uh, the Jewish people that had come out of Judaism and embraced Christianity, the way, as we'll see, that's what it's called. And then later in the book, the second section speaks primarily of the acts of the apostle Paul starting with his uh, being actually a persecutor of the church and then through his conversion and onto his missionary journeys and so on. It can also be known as the Acts, and some call it the Acts of the Holy Spirit, because the person and the work of the Spirit is figured throughout, beginning in verse 2. We see the Holy Spirit show up, and he's prominently featured throughout the book. So uh, that's that's the title. Now, what you also understand, many of the things that we look at in the New Testament are the letters. This is not a letter. This is an account. This is a, and it's a popular word in our culture today. This is a narrative. All right. And so, uh, the author is a, a Gentile physician by the name of Luke. We don't know a lot about him, but we know that the Apostle Paul in Colossians 4, 14 refers to Luke as the beloved physician. That's how we know that he was a doctor. So, uh, also, just looking at the writing style, the vocabulary uh, in both Luke and the book of Acts suggests a, a well-educated and analytical mind. Uh, this, is, this is some of the best Greek in the New Testament. It's right up there with the book of Hebrews as far as the classic style of Greek. Yes, it's still Koine Greek, which is street Greek, but it's, it's, it's a high version of that. So, the other thing we know about Luke is that he was a frequent traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. Paul also refers to him in Philemon and also in Second Timothy. Uh, as we look at this and, and we look at Luke's participation in this book, because he was with Paul, with Peter, part of the time, uh, we look at the, the, the pronouns we and us and they uh, throughout the book of Acts. And I'll point them out as we get to them. We understand that Luke probably joined Paul at Troas, and we'll look at that on a map in a little bit. Uh, we see that in chapter 16, because he, he again, refers to it as we at that point. Uh, he Paul left Luke at Philippi, because after that, it's they went on. Uh, so, again, this is interpretation, but best guess uh, at Luke's participation. Now, Paul probably picked Luke up in Troas on his way back after he had gone through uh, that his journeys on his way back when he was going in Acts 20 where we see that he goes to meet the Ephesian elders at Miletus. That Troas is north of Ephesus. I'll show you again on a map in a little bit. And, and, and so Luke was part of this whole picture. Uh, we also know that from Second Timothy that Luke was with Paul in Rome during his second imprisonment because he was awaiting execution by the Romans and Luke was there. That's probably where Luke got a lot of the information that he records here as far as 
the, the things that he's put down, the parts where he wasn't an eyewitness, uh, spending a great deal of time with Paul. So who is the intended recipient or recipients of this account, of this narrative? And, and we'll see here, both in the Gospel of Luke and in the book of Acts, it was a, a person by the name of Theophilus. Now, there are primarily two explanations about who this Theophilus is. Now, we get a hint again in Luke chapter 1, we see him referred to as the most excellent Theophilus. Now, and I looked that word up in the original, and what it's talking about is a position it would be the same as saying your excellency, talking about a high official. So it could indicate, indicate that he was a specific uh, Roman official that had some importance. And Luke is writing to this individual with the intent of informing him first of the extent of the life and ministry of Jesus. And then with as far as the extent and the establishment of the early church, because Luke is about the life and ministry of Jesus. Acts is about the early church. So he could have been talking to this Theophilus guy and giving him an explanation. We don't know. The second we, the thing we can look at here is the literal translation of Theophilus. It's Theo, which means God, and Phyllis, or Phileo, it's a derivative of the word love. And it means God lover, or lover of God. So if we look at that, if, if Luke was writing and he was sort of cryptic in his writing, he could be saying, and I'm writing this to you, lover of God, and I want you to understand the things that have been going on. It, that, and that leads to a, a, a general audience that he was writing this to instead of a specific person. We don't know. Take your pick, because at the end of the day, with either of these interpretations, we, the church, are the direct beneficiaries of Luke's writing. So, don't know. But, at the, like I said, the, the important thing is, is that God saw to it that this would be preserved and come down through the ages to us as Scripture. So, where and when was it written, this book, this book of Acts that we're looking at? Uh we get, again, we're, we're sort of backing into a lot of these answers, but it, by doing some thorough Bible study, it's pretty easy to come up and to ascertain some of the things that are being asked that we're talking about here. Uh, and first is that the book ends, chapter 28 in the book of Acts ends pretty abruptly. I mean, he goes account, 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 and then stop. And where it stops is with Paul's first imprisonment in Rome. He actually says in chapter 28 that Paul was there for two years in a rented house. So we know that it was written after that. He wouldn't have known before that. He wouldn't have written this. So what we can do with that is that was around 62 AD or so. 60 to 62 is when we think that Paul was in prison in Rome. But he was, again, he was under house arrest, chained to a Praetorian guard. Uh, so we can look at the fact that this book was probably written somewhere around 63 uh, because it was written pretty closely after the events that he describes in chapter 28. He doesn't go into the death of Paul. Uh, we look at that in 2 Timothy, uh, but we know that he was there. So 
as we've mentioned, Luke accompanied Paul. We know that he was present both his first and second imprisonment. Uh, it stands to reason that as far as the where goes, that the book of Acts was probably written from Rome. So what would be the purpose of this book? Uh, again, just giving you a brief outline because we're going to do a deep dive into this book uh, in the coming weeks and months. And I think it's really important to lay a foundation this morning. So I know this is more like uh, a classroom lecture than a sermon, but it's important for us to know because if we're going to study God's word, if we're going to be grounded in the foundational truths of Christianity and remain so in the midst of all this craziness, we need to know, we need to understand. We need to understand the background of this book because it will make that much more sense as we go through. Um, Luke's original purpose, it may have been to, as I mentioned, to assist this Theophilus guy uh, in learning about Jesus and the apostles and the formation of the church and all of that. Regardless of that, as far as the purpose here, uh, God's providence very definitely comes into play. Uh, with regard to the inspiration, this is inspired writing. With regard to the preservation, this, this writing has been preserved intact down through the millennia for us and the purpose of this book. So looking at the purpose, I want you to imagine with me for a moment, you finish the gospel of John. You're reading through the Bible. You're reading through the New Testament. You Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You finish the gospel of John and you turn to the next book and it says uh, the letter of the apostle Paul to the, the Romans. Let's say you take Acts out of the picture. We would be left with almost no information as to the birth and the formation of the early church, of the church of Jesus Christ, the church that he established through these men, through the Acts of the Apostles. We'd lack understanding as to how the Apostles went forward after the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. What happened? What was next? We'd have no understanding of the Great Commission or how it was carried out in bringing the gospel of Christ first to the Jewish world and then to the Gentile nations. That's all here in this book. We wouldn't have that information. We'd be left with a theoretical information and a theoretical understanding as the ministry of the Holy Spirit with little in the way of practical application. We're going to see a lot and we're going to do, again, we're going to do a lot of exploration as to the ministry of the Holy Spirit and how relevant that is for us today. Great information here. This is, you don't need me to tell you, this is an extremely, extremely important book because the book of Acts is the answer to the question, what happened next? We see all of the things in the Gospels leading right up to the crucifixion and, and, and Luke records the ascension. What, what happened after that? And not only does it illuminate the establishment and growth of the church, we see also a primary purpose in the book of Acts is this. Your faith and mine is shaped by the model that we see here in the book of Acts. When we look at why do we do what we do, yes, culture influences us. I'm not going to try to pretend it doesn't. But when we look at why we do what we do, it is informed greatly by the things that we find here in the book of Acts. Uh, so much. And, and we'll tag those bases as we get to them. I, I don't want to take the time to go into a list of those things right now. But truly, our faith is informed by this book. 
greater than any other work of the New Testament as far as the, the practical outworking, the practicing of our faith. So what's the key verse? If you look at 28 chapters here, and that's we're going to look at it this morning in chapter 1, and it would be verse 8. Uh, Acts 1.8 says, uh, Jesus is talking here. He says, but you'll receive power. Dunamis. So some people like to use the word dynamite. <laughs> I think that's a, a lousy interpretation. It's more like dynamic. You'll receive a spiritual dynamic when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And as a result of that, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem in all, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. As we look at this, and we'll get into chapter, or verse 8 in a little bit, I want to look at, I've got a slide here with the, the geography that we're looking at. Yeah, and I brought my little pointer. I, actually, I was messing with my wife last night and was hitting her with a laser. So... When he talks about Jerusalem, Judea, and the uttermost parts of the earth, and we'll see here on this chart in a minute, that that's actually covered throughout this book. So here we have Jerusalem down here. Here's Israel. Just to the south was Judea. Just to the north was Samaria. Those were, those were parts of the nation of Israel in the first century. We'll also see, just working our way around, well, and then here up at the top, we have Rome. And, and we see that Jerusalem was the center for the Messianic church. Rome was the center for the Gentile church. Now, it wasn't, they didn't have like a home office there, but I mean, it's talked about, it's discussed a lot. Uh, and we just finished the book of Romans. Now, when he talks about, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and then Judea and then Samaria and then to the uttermost parts of the earth, that happened. And we see it covered in the book of Acts. There are other interpretations of that and say, well, you know, we haven't evangelized the tribes in the high mountains of Peru or wherever it is, so we haven't really carried this out. I beg to differ. I think that <laughs> Romans tells us that we'll know, that people know just by the testimony of nature itself. And, and, and so God does his thing with them there. But my point is here is that as we look at the book of Acts, that this is the area that's covered as we study. And it's a large area. This is this whole Asia Minor here. Now, I want you to understand and to notice that in the top here, and you guys are full screening this for the people online, right? Good. All right. The top here, we're in the top right corner. It says Ukraine and Crimea. That wasn't there in the first century. I mean, the land was there. But I want you to understand something. I'm just going to do a short departure. I came and added this to my map later because I, I was watching a thing with uh, Amir Sarfati uh, online yesterday. And my wife was talking about she had watched some other stuff uh, that he had done talking about potential scenarios for the last days that tip us into the end times. If you look in Ezekiel 38 and 39, you see Magog. Uh, most scholars think that that's Russia. Yesterday, uh, part of what Sarfati was coming out, what he was talking about, was for the first time in a long time that you can drive a car 
from Russia, which would be like up in the ceiling somewhere, from Russia all the way through Ukraine into Crimea and across, and, and, and that now with the Russians controlling that area, we look at Magog will go to war with Israel at some point. We don't know when. Uh, and there's there's a lot of speculation about that. That's another study. But my point is, is that Israel uh, will there will be a hook that that causes Magog to drop down and to go to war with Israel. Now this landmass is between the two right here is modern day Turkey. All right, the Turks at the present moment are friendly towards Israel. But alliances in the Middle East shift <laughs> almost daily. I mean, right now it's to their advantage that they're aligned with Israel. We also know that Israel has huge natural resources. And again, this is speculation. You look at the, what is it, two trillion cubic feet of natural gas right off the Mediterranean coast of Israel. Uh, look at the energy mess that the world is just getting into. And, and it wouldn't take long, it wouldn't take much politically for alliances to shift and for Israel to want to do a grab on those resources. I don't know. I mean, for Russia to do a grab on Israel's resources. I, I, we don't know. But I thought it was worth mentioning because I want you to see the proximity of Crimea, which Russia took first, and now the Ukraine. You know, see the proximity of them to Israel. I mean, you drop due south. And it's not a great distance uh, before you see that. So uh, I want you to also uh, look at the book here. We have the second slide. Uh, And it looks complicated. It's really not. But I'll just really quickly look at the overview. You see here where it talks about the Acts of Peter. That goes all the way through verse 12. And then the Acts of Paul from verse 13 to 28, or chapter 13 to chapter 28. All right, so now we see here that the church is born. The church grows through testing. Persecution breaks out. The church is scattered. And the church embraces the Gentiles. That's this first section of the book. Now, the second, when Paul is raised up, uh, we see Saul here. We see his testimony of his conversion here. Uh, we see that he's the persecutor of the church, then he gets saved, and then he is instructed by Jesus himself, and at this point he launches into his missionary journeys, and that's this section here. First journey, second journey, third journey, and then he's imprisoned, first in Jerusalem, then in Caesarea, that's Caesarea Maritima, not Caesarea Philippi. Philippi is up in the mountains, Maritima is on the seacoast, north of what's commonly known as today as Tel Aviv and then imprisoned in Rome for two imprisonments there. So we have the Jewish period, and then a transition, and then the Gentile period. So that's sort of a breakdown, how I wanted you guys to understand. That's what's going on politically. That's what's going on spiritually as we look at the book of Acts. That there's... uh, there's a sequence. There's a, a, an order to the things that we're going to study. And there's an order to the way that Luke laid it all out. you got to remember that Luke and Acts originally were one literary unit, two volumes of the same literary piece. Uh, pretty clear there. So let's get into the text here. And, and 
Uh, let's break it down. We're going to go through a few verses this morning. In verse 1, he says, The former account, again, this is an account, it's a narrative, I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he presented himself alive after his suffering, by many infallible proofs being seen by them during forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So he talks about the former account here in Acts chapter 1. What former account? The Gospel of Luke. I'm going to read the first four verses of the Gospel of Luke. And, and look at how it synchronizes. He says in, in Luke 1, 1, he says, Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative, there's that word, of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered to them, uh, delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know with certainty the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. So both passages have the same flow. They have the same structure. It's the same guy. As we see here in Luke chapter 1, he's writing to Theophilus. He wants to be sure that this guy, if it's a guy, or if it's a group, but he wants to be sure that the intended recipient understands with certainty the things with which they've been instructed. Folks, that's the part of this account, of this narrative, that really drove me to wanting to go into this book at this time. Because I believe that what he says there continues to be God's will for us, the church, now, presently, he says, look, you need to understand with certainty the things with which you've been instructed. The word of God is supreme. And, and we can't afford, folks, we can't afford to get it wrong. We can't afford to go to get off the rails and get into some spiritual hype. As I mentioned, we can't afford to not understand that God's word is relevant and it comes into play in each of our lives individually every single day. We need to be informed. We need to be instructed. It needs to be with a certainty that we approach God's word and that we approach our lives operating from a biblical worldview. Anything else is we sell ourselves short and we can easily drift into living a lie. Now he speaks in verse 2 of Jesus through the Holy Spirit giving instruction to his men. Uh, and this is the first mention in the book of Acts of the Holy Spirit's ministry. So remember, think about this too. Remember all the times when Jesus would be talking to his men and they essentially would say, what? <laughs> Scratch their heads? I mean, there's a lot of that in the Gospels. I mean, there are points where I picture, you know, Jesus maybe rolling his eyes or something. I mean, he doesn't say that. Or, or looking up towards heaven and saying, Father, you could have given me a brighter bunch. <laughs> but the point is, is that these guys often didn't get it. They weren't supposed to get it. Their eyes hadn't been opened. The Holy Spirit had not yet been given in measure to where they would have illumination of his words. So this is a fulfillment. When it, he talks about 
in verse 2 about the Holy Spirit giving instruction to his men. Uh, Jesus through the Holy Spirit. Uh, in John 16, Jesus told his men, he said, the Holy Spirit will glorify me. He will illuminate. That's what the word glorify means. He will illuminate me. And, and folks, you can have understanding of the word of God. You can know what it says. But unless you have the Holy Spirit illuminating God's word to your heart, to the inner person, the inner man, the inner woman, you won't know what it means. When I did jail ministry, I've mentioned before, I would talk to guys that knew what it said backwards and forwards, inside out. All they had was time to sit and memorize the scripture. And they were literally know-it-alls that had very little idea, if any idea, what God's word meant. Big difference. So remember here, it's been nearly six weeks since the resurrection. Forty days, he says. Uh, in that time, Luke says here that Jesus had given them many infallible proofs. Uh, just a major one that comes to mind. And, and again, we we're not going to get into the details. I mean, we see, you know, we know that in Matthew, it says the graves were open and that people saw Jesus after the resurrection and, and all of that. In, in, Acts, or in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about Jesus being seen by over 500 people after he rose from the dead. That's a big deal. The Bible doesn't give us a great deal of information over these 40 days, these six weeks, but we can trust that Jesus was informing his men and giving them critical instruction that they would use in the days to come. Uh, and in just the last chapter of Luke, as, as he closes out Luke before he launches into Acts, uh, we go from the resurrection to the road to Emmaus. Remember that? Have you read about that? Uh, I love, uh, he, he, he's with these guys on the road to Emmaus and then he's sitting there eating with them and he opens their eyes and, 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 and their conversation after that was, didn't our hearts just burn within us as he revealed the scriptures to us, as he opened our understanding. He goes from that to appearing to his disciples as he rose from the dead and, and he opened the scriptures to them, we're told. He exhorts them to wait for the promise of the Father, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about that in a minute. So if we compare Acts chapter 1 with Luke chapter 24, we clearly see that Luke is transitioning from his former account, that's what he calls it, to his latter account here in the book of Acts. Here's the last few verses of the gospel of Luke. Luke 24 verses 46 through 51. And you'll see how it just meshes together with Acts chapter 1. He says uh, in Luke 24, 46, it says, And he said to them, Jesus here said to them, Thus it is written, thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations. Beginning at Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father, that's the Holy Spirit, upon you. But tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. And then he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands, and he blessed them. Now it came to pass, while he blessed them, that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. Uh, it's just, I just think that's, that whole scene is awesome. Right, the first, um, uh, or going back to Acts chapter 1, verse 4, 
He Luke writes, and being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. Do you see how this meshes? Which he said, you've heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Pentecost was coming. Uh, Pentecost was 50 days after the resurrection. And here they had, it was it was 40 days when Luke is writing about these events. So he tells us that Jesus led his men out of Bethany, or out to Bethany, which was a small town on the backside of the Mount of Olives. This is a, uh, the same place where Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived. As we see at the end of Luke, Jesus tells them to wait and remain in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father. He says that in both places. So at this moment, and these guys, as Jesus is giving them these final instructions, they could have no idea how radically changed their lives would be shortly uh, when the promise of the Father came, when they were baptized in the Holy Spirit. Uh, they continued to wonder, and we'll look at it in a sec, Lord, when are you going to set up your kingdom? When are the national promises to Israel going to come into play? Because those do exist. And they assumed that it would be then. When he talks about baptism here, I mean, that is the word bapto in the original. And it means to immerse or to dunk, (laughs) to completely cover. He says John's baptism, he talks about that a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And then he talks about being immersed. How much more? Being immersed in the Spirit of God, the very presence of God taking up residence inside you, inside me. Again, they, they couldn't, they could not imagine, literally could not imagine at this point what that would be like. I mean, and we'll look at it. When we see Peter going from cowering at the enemy's fire cursing at the little girl and all of that in the account of the crucifixion to standing (laughs) and proclaiming Christ boldly and 3,000 people getting saved, 3,000 people converting the church, catching fire because the Holy Spirit was working. He says in verse 6, Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? (laughs) Now, They'd evidently been discussing that uh, between themselves. This is not one person asking. This is somebody coming up and saying, hey, you know, we've been talking about this and we want to know. <laughs> Are you going to do it now? I mean, you, we've kind of had our gears ground <laughs> to dust these last weeks. I mean, the the Romans are after us. The Jews hate us. The people are questioning. All of these things are going on. And, and you know, yeah, you said you were going to go away when we were there at the upper room with the Last Supper and all that, but now you're here, and so what's up? It's not a bad question Uh, for them or for us, I might add. Um, But they'd asked him a similar question before, shortly before he went to the cross. In Matthew 24, verse 3, uh, again, a collective question, not one person. It says, tell us. So the disciples came to him while he sat on the Mount of Olives. And they come to him. Again, I picture them kind of off in a little huddle saying, we got to figure this out, guys. I don't know what he's doing next. So they come to him. They say, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming end of the end of the age? He answers, 
them and, and there in Matthew 24 in verse 36, he says, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my father only. Interesting. Notice the subtle difference in his answer with these guys now. Verse 7. And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. And I do believe that there's a subtle difference there because Jesus, when they asked him the first time, he had not yet been glorified. He had not yet gone to the cross. He says, only the Father knows, not even me. But here, he doesn't say that. He says, it's not for you to know. The response is essentially the same. You're not, it's not for you to understand that. That is something that is not for you to get. I was thinking about this. Um, what's the first thing that happens when a phone call comes from a friend that, or, or company that they're, they're on their way to your house. They'll be there in 15 minutes. Now, my wife keeps a, an immaculate house. She's a great housekeeper, but there's always stuff to tidy up when that phone call comes, right? I mean, it's like, we need to make sure that the toilet's cleaned and that we've got to get this thing here and we've got to do that and, and all. And, and, and I'm going, okay, when we have company, it's a really good thing because I eat really well. But it's a really bad thing because I have a lot of housework to do. But the point is, is that, you know, how would you and I live if we knew the date that Jesus was going to come back? Seriously. To what degree would that change the way we live? To what degree would that change the way we behave? Would we be discouraged, depressed, if we knew that, pray as we might for his soon return, that he wouldn't be coming in our lifetimes? I think it's fair to say that with some, not much would change if we knew that date. But for others, there'd be a whole lot of tidying up going on. The point is, We're to live in the expectation of his soon and sudden return. When he comes to get the church, I mean, we're told that at the, when we hear that trumpet of the archangel and the dead in Christ will rise first and those who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the air. We don't know when that's going to be. We do know that nothing has to be fulfilled from God's word for that to take place. The references that we see to the coming of Christ are references to the second coming, but it casts a large, long shadow into our day. So you got to understand, we're to live expectantly. You know, I I heard the saying years ago, and and I I still, I love it. It, it, And that's this, is that you plan in concrete, plan like he's not coming back for a hundred years, but but operate in jello. You operate in sort of this fluid environment of, you know what, If I, I want to be ready if today is the day. Because we don't know. We, we don't have, he hasn't given that to us on purpose. But what he always stresses, what he always emphasizes with both in Matthew 24 and here, is it's not for you to know, but it is for you to be ready. Again, part of why I, I felt strongly led to come and to, to begin studying this book Because this is good stuff through which we can be ready for the Lord's soon return. And I do believe it's soon. We don't know. Um, The point in all of this is it's a fool's errand to try to figure out when (laughs) the Lord's going to return. And if you hear somebody tell you that they know, um, 
I'm trying to think of a kind way to put this. Uh, hogwash. <laughs> nobody, yeah, that, that was the kind response. But nobody knows. And, and, and don't, and, 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 you know, we know in the last days there will be people who are deceivers. <laughs> there will be people that are, that are parroting all kinds of things. It's not about that. The point in all of this, it's a fool's errand to try to assume we know when, but it's a wise man or a wise woman who lives with the expectancy that he can return at any time. That should be the attitude of our hearts. We look for his return. We live for his return. We live as though the phone call has already come and he's on his way over because that's what brings him glory. That's what gives our lives definition and meaning and focus and perspective. Otherwise, we're just out there, as Hebrews 2 warns, we're out there adrift. He says, be careful. In Hebrews 2, when he says, be careful, let's pay Pay particular attention to the things that, he, that we've heard, lest we drift away from it. There's a lot of drifting going on out there, folks. Let that not be so among us. Now, verse 8, as we get into this, verse 8, as I mentioned, it, it really establishes kind of the theme of the book. Um, it's pivotal. This is the what's next when we look at the book of Acts. He's essentially saying, don't worry about when I return personally because I'm sending the Holy Spirit. That's his response to their question. He says, it's not for you to know. However, you're worried about me going away and we're going to see the ascension in a minute. You don't need to worry about that. I'm sending you the Holy Spirit. No longer would the work of God be limited to time and space. I mean, Jesus could only be in one place at one time. Yeah, after the resurrection, he kind of phased in and out there. But truly, the work of God was limited. Now, with people having been redeemed because the work of redemption was done, being a cleansed vessel, now the eternal living God could now indwell believers with no constraint. And folks, we talk about the supernatural. His indwelling the hearts and minds of every child of God is an exceptionally supernatural work because it's real. He's real. And he does come in. Talk about that as we go here. So in verse 8, he says, but when he said, it's not for you to know, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses You'll be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Here, Jesus speaks of the Holy Spirit coming upon them. So what does he mean by that? He'll come upon you. Now, there are three prepositions that we see in the New Testament, in the Word of God, that describe three key aspects or dimensions of the interaction of the Holy Spirit with people. I want to look at that for a minute. And that's with the terms that we see here are with, in, and upon. Now, in John chapter 14, verses 15 to 18, uh, Jesus, again, talking to his disciples, to his men, he says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father that he will give you another helper. Who's the first helper? He is that he may abide with you forever. With, there's that word with. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, 
but you know him for he dwells with you. This is before he went to the cross and will be in you. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Again, addressing their deep concern. This is in the upper room, hours before the cross. Addressing their deep concern because he told them he was leaving. So Jesus spoke to the men who were with him that they would know the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit, because he dwells with you, uh, the Holy Spirit was operating amongst them in Jesus. That, that's how they knew of the Holy Spirit's work. They saw the Holy Spirit in full operation in the person and work of Jesus living with them. Now, I, I think that there's a greater understanding of this too in our day when an unbeliever is experiencing an awareness of God. When an unbeliever has has a desire to know God, I remember, oh, I remember, uh, I just want to know you. I remember when I was coming out of the, the Mormon church and there was just all of this hype and the stuff and all, and, and I just, I so clearly remember saying, God, I don't care about all of that. I just want to know you. And that, that was the Holy Spirit with me. He was directing me. He was putting that hunger in my heart. Perhaps a person's broken over their own sin, that their life is a mess. It's a result of the Spirit of God being with them, not yet in them. Jesus has not yet been to the cross. Thus, it was, it was impossible for the Holy Spirit to be in them. However, after having been to the cross, in his very first appearance uh, to his men, a- after the resurrection, Jesus says this in John chapter 20. says, Jesus said to them again, peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Now he's saying, all right, look, there's work for you to do. When he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. At that moment, Jesus' men went from having the experience of the Holy Spirit being with them to the Holy Spirit now being in them, indwelling them. This is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that is a birthright for every single one of God's people. So the preposition in is the crucial part here. It's a definitive, it, it defines the relationship of the spirit in the life of every believer in Christ. Now, Jesus was looking into the future here with his disciples. They would become born again and receive the Holy Spirit. And through that, the Spirit of God would start living inside of them permanently. If you are a child of God, if you are someone who names the name of Christ, if you have trusted in the work of the cross, the power of the cross, if you have trusted in the, the person of Jesus, the God in the flesh come to earth, if you understand the gospel and you believe it, this is yours. The Spirit of God comes and indwells every single one of us. I was talking to somebody last week and I was talking about uh, the struggles that I, as well as any of us have at times. And I said, you know what? I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, but I leak. <laughs> I think that that's a true statement. We, folks, we can appropriate. He has given us all of the Holy Spirit. It's not like I got a, a little bit and, and he's like saying, move over. He's saying, no, I want to have preeminent place in your heart and life. And that flesh, that old nature has to go. Is that something that happens consistently with any of us? Positionally, yes. Practically, we wrestle. 
And I think that God wants us to wrestle because if you stop wrestling and you just live in according to the flesh, you're in very serious shape with the Lord. The spirit is given to redeemed people. It's not about me. It's not about how good I've been. It's not about any of that. It's about, have I trusted him? Have I trusted Christ? And at that moment, the spirit indwells me. I might not be aware of it. And there are times where there are powerful manifestations of the spirit in people's lives. And I don't discount that at all. I may not be aware of his presence at a given moment, but he has taken up residence in my life, in my heart. And as I yield to him, that's where I grow. As I yield to him, that's where I understand his word. As I yield to him, that's where I understand that my life will not necessarily be easy. Don't sell me this cheap Christianity where it's just going to be easy that you deserve a good life and all of those things, all that hype that gets peddled out there. I don't, I don't believe that there's anything in God's word that says, as a matter of fact, there's a lot that's to the contrary. But I can absolutely be assured that while it may not be easy, it'll be worth it. We're told that the spirit is given as a down payment on heaven. He's given as a pledge, as an earnest. So essentially the Holy Spirit living within is a major component of what defines someone as being a Christian. There are a lot of deists out there. Oh, I believe in God, but they've never done business with Jesus. You can believe in God all day long. The Bible tells us the demons believe and they shudder. Do you have a relationship with Christ? Through that, the indwelling of the spirit is guaranteed. It's interesting. Uh, this, uh, this wasn't the case with many uh, or with any uh, of the Old Testament saints or prophets. In Hebrews chapter 1, we're told that it tells us that they spoke by the Holy Spirit in many portions, in many ways. Never in the fullness of God's Spirit as he indwells believers today. Uh, they couldn't. Their sin had been covered, but it had never been eliminated. And so the Spirit of God couldn't come in. So for us, the Spirit's ongoing ministry is in us and, and then upon us. And what that speaks of is service. If you'll notice when he talks about the Spirit, the Holy Spirit coming upon people, it it immediately precedes there's something to do. So I see a lot of nonsense out there about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Is that real? Yeah. And, And is that a powerful thing? Yes, it is. And can it happen more than once? Absolutely. I believe that's all borne out by God's word. But it's to empower us for service, for kingdom work. We'll look at that more uh, as we go through, uh, in, especially as we move through these first few chapters in Acts. Um, so the spirit upon the baptism, uh, it does carry a different sense altogether. And that was not new, by the way, to the Israelites. It was essentially the anointing. You see in the Old Testament where, you know, like Samuel the prophet comes and he dumps a big jar of oil on David's head. That was a symbolic, outer symbolic of, of what's going on. The anointing where the spirit comes upon someone, uses them in power or wisdom to accomplish a specific task. We see judges, kings, priests, prophets were anointed. As such, the spirit of God came upon them for service, but in a limited sense. Again, the fullness of the spirit could not happen until the cross and the resurrection. 
of Jesus. Jesus had instructed his men to wait for the promise of the Father because he knew there's nothing that they could do in and of themselves. They had zero power to carry out the work that he was going to set before them uh, for the kingdom of God. None of that could happen until the Spirit came, until he baptized them in the Spirit. And we'll look at that when we look at Pentecost. I also want to note, you to notice too here, the Son is speaking of the Spirit being the promise of the Father. Uh, we see all three persons of the Trinity. We see the entire Godhead here in, in this scene as Jesus is laying these things out to his men. So as a result of this coming upon by the Spirit, they would be witnesses. That's what he says. And the Greek word for this is martis. And it simply means, it translates, one who testifies. He's saying the work that they're being called to would be to testify of him in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts, the remotest parts of the earth. Folks, this is the Great Commission. And it wasn't just for them. There's a parallel to this in Matthew 28, at the, the very last words of Matthew's gospel. And these are Jesus' words here. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. How would Jesus be with them, with us always? Through the agency of the Holy Spirit. It's interesting to me here in Acts where Jesus says, he speaks first of Jerusalem. So in these men's lives, it would be those in their immediate circle, their surroundings. It would be the people that, that were in their sphere of influence. But he goes outward from there. I picture it like a stone, a still pond, and you drop a stone in the middle of it and, and the rings, the concentric circles begin to expand outward. That's sort of the picture that he's drawing here when he says, start in Jerusalem. And then there's Judea. Uh, that's the area just to the south of Jerusalem. Remember on the map, Judea is the, it's, it was a, a region. Uh, it would be like saying, start in Newburgh and then to Yamhill County. So he's saying, expand outward from there. And then he goes, and when he in Acts here, he says, then to Samaria. And I always laugh when I look at Samaria. That was the bad neighborhood in the first century. The Samaritans were loathed by the Jews. They did not like the, the, the Samaritans at all. It wouldn't sit well with many of the Jews. They, they just, they just struggled. And I mentioned that recently in a study that, that even Jesus's men, when he was with the Samaritan woman, they were like, what are you talking to her for? I'm paraphrasing, but that was their attitude. So he's saying, okay, start in Newburgh and then go to Yamhill County and then Portland. <laughs> I know a brother and our church has helped to support the planting of a new church in, in downtown Portland, where there's a huge vacuum, a huge need. Um, and, and, and pray for the new work there. It's called Portland City Church. And we're real excited. He called me the other day and uh, just kind of has given us an update on what's going on there. The point is, he says, Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. And I would picture when... He says this to the guys that they probably started looking at each other like Samaria, really? Seriously? They had centuries, I mean centuries, of inbred hostile feelings towards these people. They might have loathed the Samaritans, but Jesus didn't. 
He loved them. They were as worthy of the gospel of the kingdom as anybody else. And I love the fact that Jesus includes them here. We don't catch the nuances often when we read through this, but this is a big deal for these guys. And yeah, it's a big deal for us. It's a huge lesson in that for you and I. Uh, that person that really bugs you, Jesus died for them. That corrupt political leader, and I've got a whole list, that you think is beyond redemption, Jesus died for them. Those who have gone out of their way to cause pain or hardship, committed evil against you or others, Jesus died for them. It's not an okay, it's not a rubber stamp that it's okay, the things that people have done or are doing. But it is saying that the gospel goes out to all the earth. The Bible tells us it's God's will that none should perish. That, it, that it, he would, it, it's his will that all would come to repentance. We know that not all will. Samaria, the bad neighborhood. And then to the remotest parts of the earth. As I showed you on the map, this is carried out in the book of Acts. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. And then on a cross, uh, the, the expansion of the gospel is, is remarkable. So as we begin to wrap up, I, I want to mention two things about the Great Commission. Uh, first, this commission applies to all believers. No, you don't get a, you don't get a free pass. The Great Commission is for you. It's for me. It's for every single one of us. Because we have been given what the Bible calls the ministry of reconciliation. It's not just pastors. It's not just people who are really, really in or people who are not shy or people who are whatever. We have been given the ministry of reconciliation. Reconciling a lost, screwed up, upside down, evil, perverse world to Christ. It's easy when it's somebody that we care about and they're receptive to the message of the gospel, isn't it? Not so much. But those who are hostile or aggressive stand against the things of God. Secondly, I, I want to mention, you'll never be able to carry out the Great Commission unless you're walking in the Great Commandment. Folks, it goes hand in hand. This isn't about filling a quota <laughs> or carving another notch in your Bible. Matthew 22, verses 37 to 40, Jesus says, again, talking to his men, uh, no, actually, no, he's not talking to this man. He's talking to the religious leaders that were trying to, to trap him, trying to foul him up. Uh, so they're asking, what's the greatest commandment in the law? Tell us, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And they were thinking that he was going to quote one of the ten. But in typical Jesus fashion, he answers them in such a manner that they are tongue-tied. They have no idea how to respond. He said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That's the first commandment. The second, he says, this is the first great commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang the law and the prophets, the entire Old Testament, the entire Bible at the days when he spoke this, that was the entire Bible. That was the entire word of God. The whole thing hangs on these two. Love God, love your neighbor. It's not three even though he says, as you love yourself, we don't have a lot of problem with that. Most of us, truth be known, I don't have a lot of problem with that. On these two, love God, love people. And that's not always easy. 
Loving those around us is risky. The gospel divides. Folks, you got to know that. That's what Jesus meant when he said, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. He's not saying that we come out swinging. That's not his point. He's saying we come out loving enough to risk others turning away from us as a result of the gospel. That's what he's saying. That's carrying out, that's fulfilling the great commission in our lives. Make it practical. Make this for you because it is. It's for me too. For these men, as they would go out in the spirit, in the power of the spirit, to be witnesses in an unfriendly world, all of the apostles except John would die violent deaths at the hands of others for their testimony because they were witnesses of Christ, of the person and the work of Jesus. Sobering. It's sobering. Verse 9 says, uh, uh, Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. I think about the cloud, and I think, is that could that have been the, like the same as the tabernacle, the, the, the cloud of the Shekinah glory of God? I don't know. Might have just been a cloud in the air. Doesn't say, but... There's just a reminder there. Verse 10, And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. That's always a hint. (laughs) Angelic beings. Who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? What are you looking at? (laughs) That's a loose translation. What are you looking at? The same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, he's gone will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Folks, he is coming back. Praise God. (laughs) Luke adds that he was taken up, uh, as he was taken up, that he blessed them. We saw that in Luke uh, 24 there. Uh, So the question occurs to me, and I don't know if it occurs to you, but why the, and I don't want to, ascribe theatrics to the work of Christ that that's that cheapens him and that's not my intention at all but why the dramatic exit he could have just said hey guys see ya why I personally believe that it's because Jesus needed to demonstrate to these guys that he was gone for good this is it this is the end of my personal being with you now remember, he'd been zipping in and out for six weeks. <laughs> he'd like pass through walls and do these crazy things. And here, they know that there's a sense of finality with it. As he levitates, I mean, literally, and I think, you know, I, this is not myths. This stuff really happened. This is, this is a true account. He levitates off the ground. And they're watching him go up <laughs> into the air. And this cloud moves in and... Perhaps it moved away and he wasn't there. I don't know, but he's gone. He's sending them a very definite message. This is the end of my personal ministry to you guys. Now, wait for the promise of the Father. Wait for the Holy Spirit to be given. Wait for the power that you so desperately need. So the two men in white, obviously angels, they're directing the men away from looking for him because he's not, he's no longer there. And Jesus had told them they'd go to the, they would go to the ends of the earth. And now he's just said that you're, you know, I've got work for you to do. Here comes the Holy Spirit. You're going to be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts, all of that. 
And they're staring up into heaven. And the angels say, essentially, they're kind of kicking them and saying, what are you doing? That's done. They also, there's something that's really interesting. They say, they refer to him as this same Jesus. They're saying that this one who's going to return is the same Jesus that they'd come to know. I mean, they lived with him 24-7 for three and a half years. He's saying, this same Jesus, he's not another one. He's not an emanation of God. He's the second person of the Trinity, God in the flesh, fully God, fully man. He's going to come back and it'll be the same one that you just saw leave. I don't know about you, but that lights my fire. I get excited. And I think about where we're at in our world. I think about where we're at as far as being at the end of the age in the last of the last days before the end times come. This is exciting. And I truly believe that that's why the Lord wants us to be in this particular work as we move forward. Interesting too. They tell the men, they say he'll return the same way that he left. He'll return in a like manner. That's the words that are used as he left. I want to look at that for just a second as we wrap up. Better wrap up. He left physically. Guess how he's going to return? the physical return of Christ. He left visibly. He'll return visibly. Don't be deceived. You'll know. He left from the Mount of Olives. What does the Bible tell us about when he comes back, where he will set his foot? Mount of Olives. He left in the presence of his disciples. There's some exciting things in God's word about us being in the presence of Jesus when he returns. Lastly, and I think most importantly, is he left blessing his church, blessing his people. Doesn't tell us how he blessed them. It says that he blessed them. He pronounced a blessing on his church. And so the Bible tells us that he will indeed return in a like manner. I believe very soon. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, as we delve into this wonderful, this masterpiece of literature, this masterpiece of anointed, inspired scripture. Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts, open our minds, give us understanding, Lord, supernatural understanding of the things that you would communicate to us through it. So Father, I pray for each one here, each one perhaps online, that you would give us the things that we need in this study to be able to grow in our relationship with you, to grow in the work of the Holy Spirit within, to grow in in carrying out the Great Commission. There's so many avenues, Lord, where I believe you want to work in our hearts. So I pray for a yieldedness to the work of your Spirit. And Lord, that we would have as our aim to glorify you, to bring you glory. We give it to you in Jesus' name. Amen.